0: Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast.
1: Even though large checks of Europe and many old and famous states have have fallen or may fall into the the grip of the Gestapo, and all the odious separators of the Nazi rule. Yeah. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end! Yeah. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender! (laughs) And if... And if... Which I, I, I do not for a moment believe this island or large part of it were where we're subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle. Until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old
0: good morning church Hey, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name's Luke, and I get to serve as one of the ministers here. And you just saw a clip from the Academy Award winning movie, The Darkest Hour. Fantastic movie, great story, true story. And the scene is the year 1940. The outlook was bleak. America had not yet joined in on World War II, and yet most of continental Europe had fallen under Adolf Hitler's devastating military advance. It seemed to all the world, As though Great Britain was just the last domino left to fall, the only thing standing between the Nazis and world domination, they were all alone. And during that time, there were many in England who were arguing that they should just simply surrender to the Nazis. There's no point taking a stand, not risk being invaded, and yet their prime minister, Winston Churchill, like you just saw, stood before the British houses of parliament on June 4th, 1940, and said, know that even in our darkest hour, we will never surrender." And with his words, those exact words that you just heard, he rallied a nation out of her apathetic slumber and forged onward in the quest for victory, and the world has never been the same. And that is just a little tiny bit like what Jesus does for his closest friends in today's text. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13 today if you've got your Bibles. And if you're new here, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're excited to jump into the Gospel of Mark. If you've been around for a while, though, you know we've spent most of this year walking through the Gospel According to Mark, which are stories from the life of Jesus recorded for us by this guy named Mark. And we spent the first half of the year in the first half where we saw in chapters 1 through 8 that Jesus is the one true king. And now in the second half of the Gospel of Mark, chapters 9 through 16, we've seen quite shockingly that this king is actually headed for a cross. And as we get ready to jump into Mark 13 today, let me remind you of where we are. We are in the city of Jerusalem, and it is the last week of Jesus' life. We're on Tuesday. Now, two days ago on Sunday, Jesus came riding into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. People hailed him as the one true king. The next day on Monday, Jesus goes back into the city there. He curses a fig tree on the way in. He curses the temple when he gets inside to the city. Now it's Tuesday and Jesus is back in the city yet again and he's getting in all these debates with these Jewish religious leaders who are trying to trap him and newsflash, Jesus wins every single debate. And so honestly, Tuesday has been a pretty good day for Jesus and his followers. And you can imagine, it's toward the end of the day on Tuesday. They're walking out, leaving the city, and his disciples are probably riding kind of high. They're probably thinking, yeah, you know, Jesus, he, he really is the, the, the king, and this is kind of going to be our crowning moment. And look at those amazing temple buildings. I mean, that temple, that is just the most fantastic structure on earth, and soon Jesus will come to power. It will all be ours, and when he's the king, we're going to be like the royal cabinet, so I call the corner office in the temple. And yet Jesus turns around, and he says, hey, fellas, actually, that whole thing's coming down. That, that temple, take a look, because that thing is as good as gone. And later, once they get far enough outside the city, they go up on this hillside overlooking where they can look down at the temple, and it's just Jesus and four of his very closest friends, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they ask him this question. They said, Jesus, when, when's all this gonna happen? And Jesus' response to that question makes up the entirety of Mark chapter 13 today, where we're going to be. And in just a moment, we're actually going to read the whole chapter out loud together. I'll let you know up front that I think Mark chapter 13 is the most confusing chapter in the entire New Testament, okay? So just buckle up, because here we go. But there's a question I want you to think of as we read through it. Here's the question. Is Jesus referring to the second coming, the destruction of the temple, or both? When you hear Jesus talking in Mark 13, is he talking about the second coming, the destruction of the temple, or both? Now, we're gonna read this whole thing out loud, and we don't do this all the time, but if you would, today, would you stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word? It's a long chunk, 37 verses, and here's what we're gonna do while you have that question in mind. I'm gonna read out loud the words in white. I'd ask you to join me reading out loud together the words in yellow. Mark chapter 13 says this. As Jesus was leaving the temple... One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. Tell us, uh, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the legal councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains." Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens now learn this lesson from the fig tree as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out you know that summer is near even so when you see these things happening you know that it is near right at the door truly i tell you this generation will certainly not pass away Until all these things have happened, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Wow, uh, there's a lot there, isn't there? Uh, Needless to say, this is uh, a... a confusing text. It's a heavy text. It's arguably one of the most difficult chapters to interpret in the entire New Testament. And I just got to be honest with you, I got done writing the sermon for this week, and I thought, man, I'm still not sure I have any idea what Jesus is actually talking about. And, and anytime we read any text in the Bible, the first question that we always have to ask is, what did this mean to the original audience, to the original people who heard and read this text? Because the Bible was written for us. It was not, however, written to us. So we want to understand what original readers were supposed to get out of that text. So with that in mind, let's circle back to our original question that I asked you beforehand. Is Jesus talking about the second coming when he returns, comes riding back on the clouds to judge the earth and make all things new? Is he talking about the destruction of the temple when Rome invaded Jerusalem in the year AD 70 and pillaged the whole city? Or is he talking about both? Three major options there. And I just got to tell you, I've done a lot of reading, thought about this text for years and years now. And there's a whole lot of scholars who are way smarter than me on every single side of this debate. And I think they all have a good, strong biblical case. That being said, I tentatively like to think, I think this text is mostly only talking about the destruction of the temple in the year A.D. 70. Now, uh, there's a lot of good texts and, and reasons why, but one of the critical ones is that we just read there, Jesus says that this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. Jesus says that roughly in the year A.D. 30, 40 years later before a generation passes away. In 70 A.D., indeed, all of those things do happen. And when that stuff happens... Ancient historians outside of the Bible even tell us that when Rome came in the year 70 and they laid siege to Jerusalem, the carnage was so bad, people were starving, mothers were even eating their babies to survive. And when the Romans finally got into the city, they burned and destroyed the whole temple. They, oh, the hundreds of thousands of people were killed, taken into captivity, sold into slavery. And yet to the Jews, the very worst part was that it was a complete obliteration of their entire way of life. When the temple is gone, how in the world are we supposed to make sacrifices for our sin now? And to all the world, when Rome conquers Jerusalem and knocks down the temple, it looked to all the world like the emperor had been victorious, Rome had triumphed, and Yahweh, the God of the Jews, had been rendered obsolete. And so when Jesus gives these words, if he is indeed talking about the destruction of the temple here in Mark 13, he might not be foretelling the end of the world, but to the Jews, he is prophesying the end of their world Remember, Jesus is saying these words around the year A.D. 30. Mark is recording these words for us in the 60s A.D. in the city of Rome is where Mark is writing this gospel account. So Jesus says this, and Mark records it, before any of these things actually happen in the year A.D. 70. And so the whole point of this to the original audience is Jesus is warning, saying, Hey, you are going to see Rome tell all the world that God is dead. And the temple is gone but when you see it don't believe it for a moment remember i'm the one who cursed the temple i'm the one who said this would happen the temple failed and the jews failed because they did not accomplish their mission of showing the world the love of god so when the temple is destroyed it does not mean that god is defeated it means that jesus is right that jesus is indeed the one true king that he claimed to be that was the message to the original audience to prepare them for the calamity they were going to hear about. Now, if that's what it meant in their world, what in the world is it supposed to mean for us? In 21st century Hendricks County, Indiana. I think today though we can draw two helpful warnings from King Jesus here, warnings that Jesus gives to his dear friends on that hillside that he also gives to you and me today. Because uh, if you've lived very long, and some of you've lived quite a bit longer than I have, Um, You know, over the last decade or so, looking around, particularly as an American Christian, it has sometimes felt like we are in our darkest hours, hasn't it? And and I don't know what the world ahead is going to look like. I don't have to go into great detail. You see the dysfunction just like I do. You and I have asked all the same questions together. What kind of a world are our kids going to grow up in? What kind of a world are our grandkids going to grow up in? I don't know, but I bet it will be tough. And so in light of that, Jesus gives us two gentle warnings here in Mark chapter 13. And here's warning number one. He says, when the going gets tough, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed, Jesus says. Now, you remember um, there were those signs that were popular a few years ago. You saw them everywhere that just said, keep calm and carry on. You guys remember there's like a a million variations of those signs? Those were based on those signs from World War II that were plastered all around London that was supposed to infuse that ethos of courage that Churchill wanted to give to Parliament, that if Britain is going to stand strong in the face of the horrors of war and the Nazi regime, you got to just keep calm and carry on. And that's what Jesus is saying. When the going gets tough, don't be alarmed. We read all the words together here in Mark chapter 13. Jesus says, when you hear of wars and you hear rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. He says, actually, when you're arrested and you're brought to trial, don't worry. That's an audacious thing to say, isn't it? He actually says, hey, everybody's going to hate you, but if you stand firm to the end, you will be saved. And I don't, I don't know where you are today, but my guess is most of us in the room this morning are probably not in a position where our job is in jeopardy because of our faith. Maybe none of us in here today will ever have to do jail time because of our allegiance to Jesus. Maybe the worst it's ever gonna get for you and me as we follow Jesus is that people just think we're a little bit backwards and they think our kids and our grandkids are a little bit weird. Okay, we can deal with that, right? But let me remind you today that around the world, at this moment, we have millions of brothers and sisters who are gathering right now to worship and to pray who are being persecuted for following Jesus, and they have lost their families, and they have lost their homes, and they've lost their children, and they've lost their reputation, they've lost their livelihoods and their health for their allegiance to King Jesus. According to Open Doors, which is a ministry that tracks persecution around the world, right now, there are more than 360 million Christians who live in places where they suffer persecution and discrimination for following Jesus. 360 million. It's a huge number, isn't it? It's kind of hard for me to get my brain around a number like that, though, so let's get a little bit more specific. As best we can tell, based on the numbers we have, last year there were 2,110 churches and Christian buildings that were attacked because of their Christian affiliation. Last year, around the world, there were 5,259 Christians who were abducted. And last year, there were 5,621 Christians who were killed for their faith. That number, by the way, is going up and not down. 90% of those fatalities of those people who were killed for following Jesus, 90% of them happened in Nigeria alone we actually have a lot of brothers and sisters in our church who are recent refugees and immigrants from Africa, and many of them have come from places as violent and scary as that. You can hear their firsthand stories. What do we do with this? Now, remember, we've asked this question all along as we walk walked through the gospel of Mark. What is the gospel? What is the good news according to Jesus? And we've said that it's Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the gospel, that the kingdom of God has come near. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, Jesus says, you are right now a citizen of the kingdom of God. And yet theologians would say that right now we're living in what's called the now and the not yet this kind of tension between what is and and, and what is not. It's kind of this time between times a little bit where yes, right now the kingdom of God is here and God's will is done, and yet the kingdoms of earth are also here and they're raging against the kingdom of God. And so we live in this tension between the now and the not yet, which is why life hurts and why we have suffering and pain and why followers of Jesus are persecuted all around the world. And that's why Jesus was not a health and wealth preacher. JESUS NEVER SAID, FOLLOW ME FOR A NICER, HAPPIER YOU. JESUS NEVER SAID, FOLLOW ME AND I'LL MAKE ALL YOUR PROBLEMS GO AWAY. JESUS NEVER SAID, FOLLOW ME AND I'LL MAKE YOUR LIFE LONG AND YOUR IN-LAWS NICE AND YOUR CHECKING ACCOUNT FULL AND YOUR INSTAGRAM POPULAR AND YOUR JOB EASY AND YOUR BOSS KIND and, AND YOUR MARRIAGE SMOOTH AND YOUR KIDS WELL BEHAVED. HE DIDN'T SAY THAT, DID HE? RATHER, JESUS SAYS IN JOHN 16, HE SAYS, IN THIS WORLD, You'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So when the going gets tough, promise number one from Mark chapter 13, warning number one is do not be alarmed. Like God has not abandoned you. Jesus said that this would happen. Uh, There's a wonderful preacher down in Dallas by the name of Tony Evans, and Tony Evans, uh, he tells a story of one time when he and his wife went on an Alaskan cruise together, and they were looking forward to a nice, relaxing vacation time together, you know, and while they're on the boat, this storm breaks out. Supposedly, it was the worst storm that Royal Caribbean had ever experienced. I'm talking 50-foot waves, plates are flying, pianos are rolling, people are puking, just like a good old time. I'm on the boat, if you know what I mean. And while they're all just trying to get through this thing, cramped in their tiny little rooms, uh, Tony Evans uh, said, in in his words, he says, My wife became evangelically ticked off. (laughs) That's a good phrase. (laughs) And so Tony Evans' wife, Lois, she decides she's going to pick up the phone and call the captain. And so she picks up the phone and says, May I speak to the captain, please? And and they said, Well, ma'am, He's on the bridge right now, and he can't exactly talk to anybody, you know, because in light of the storm. And Lois said, well, uh, would you just please tell him that I am very upset that he would put us through this storm when he could have avoided it because he knew this storm was coming, so I just want to register how thoroughly upset I am about this. Okay, well, I'll, I'll relay that to the captain. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know? and, and a few minutes later, the phone rings again, and they pick up the phone, and the voice on the other end says, ma'am. Uh, We we relayed your message to the captain, and he asked me to call you back and tell you two things. The first thing that the captain wanted to say to you is, lady, go to sleep, (laughs) because I'm going to stay up all night, and there's no sense both of us staying awake. And the second thing the captain wanted to tell you is this, lady, this ship was built with this storm in mind. Long before we ever hit this storm, we knew this day would come. And so way back when we were putting this boat together, we prepared for this moment. So while the storm is bad, the boat is better. The storm is bad, but the boat is better. Now, do I even need to preach that this morning, or can you get there on your own? (laughs) Guys, we follow a crucified Carpenter. You know that's crazy, right? We follow a crucified carpenter who suffered. And he said that if we want to follow him, we actually have to be prepared to suffer with him. And yet in Mark chapter 13, he says, oh, don't be alarmed because his tomb is empty and someday yours will be too. The storm may be bad, but the boat is better because we serve a risen king, and a reigning Lord in a faith that was built for adversity. I love the words of the old prayer, that the will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you, where the arms of God cannot support you, where the riches of God cannot supply your needs, and where the power of God cannot endow you. The will of God will never take you where the Spirit of God cannot work through you, where the wisdom of God cannot teach you, where the army of God cannot protect you, and where the hands of God cannot mold you. The will of God will never take you where the love of God cannot unfold you, where the mercies of God cannot sustain you, where the peace of God cannot calm your fears, and where the authority of God cannot overrule you. The will of God will never take you. Where the comfort of God cannot dry your tears, where the word of God cannot feed you, where the miracles of God cannot be done for you, and where the omnipresence of God cannot find you. The storm is bad, but the boat is better. Because Jesus is alive and he's overcome the world. And so warning number one from Mark chapter 13 is when the going gets tough, don't be alarmed. Lady, go to sleep. (laughs) Here's warning number two. When the going gets tough, don't give up. When the warning gets tough, don't give up. Now, this particular genre of text that's really hard to read in the Bible, it's a lot of different places in Scripture, but here in Mark chapter 13, it's called apocalyptic literature. And there's a lot of different ways to read it, and some people with good intentions have taken apocalyptic literature in Scripture and they've treated it a little bit like a Rubik's Cube. It's kind of something you can twist and turn to try to lay out exactly what the exact timeline for the end times is going to be like. And yet that's not what Jesus intended apocalyptic literature to do. Remember the scene here in Mark chapter 13. Jesus is sitting on a hillside with four of his best friends, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they're confused. And so Jesus tells them these words to encourage them, to remind them, hey, just stay alert, just stay faithful, don't give up. Because he says, even when everything else falls away, even when everything else fails you, we read it earlier, he says, My words will never pass away. Don't give up. In fact, Jesus says that all of this brokenness that we've all seen, all the suffering that is happening all around us, in verse eight, we, we read it earlier, Jesus said, Those are birth pains. Birth pains. Now, Paul actually plays on that image later in the New Testament. Paul says it like this He says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. That means that all the pain that you are currently experiencing in the world as a follower of Jesus, those are birth pains. Now, some of you ladies in the room, you've felt birth pains before. By the grace of God, I have not. I'm so thankful that's a privilege you've received, and not me. God bless you. Ladies, we are very thankful for you. Now, some of you, if you got together and you started telling your childbirth horror stories, I've been in the room for some of those parties. It's not particularly fun. And, and listen, you could tell the story, though, of like giving birth is not fun, and it's not easy, and it's hard work. That's why they call it labor, right? (laughs) And in fact, um, I don't even know if I should do this, but just as an admittedly, like um, non-medically informed dude, okay, who's never been there and never experienced, can I just remind you that the pain of childbirth was actually part of the curse? Way back in the very beginning, you remember Genesis chapters one, two, and three, Adam and Eve sinned, and because Adam and Eve sinned, that's why childbirth hurts. So listen, it's a free country. If you're gonna have a baby, you can have the baby however you want. I'm genuinely happy for you. But I hear some of these ladies talking about going all natural and wanting to feel the pain and all refuse the anesthetic. And listen, like I, just my two cents, stick it to Eve, get the epidural, okay? That's just Luke's opinion, that's not in the Bible. That was for free, you're welcome. Let's get back to the Bible. (laughs) Imagine you're in a hospital. Imagine you're in a hospital and you hear a woman screaming in pain. Now it makes a difference where you are in the hospital, doesn't it? If you hear a woman screaming in pain, it makes a big difference if you're in the cancer unit or if you're in the maternity ward because there's a kind of pain that leads to death, and there's a kind of pain that leads to life. And Jesus says, if these are birth pains, that means if you can just keep going, if you can just not give up, if you can just keep pushing, then you are going to get to watch God push all the way through and give birth to a new and redeemed world, a new and redeemed world that you and I are going to get to live in with him, a world where there's no death and no sin and no curse and no heartache and no more child-sized caskets and no more 21-gun salutes and no more ibuprofen and no emergency rooms and no divorce courts and no foster care and no loneliness, so just don't give up because that day is coming and you don't want to miss it Amen. Amen. and it's coming soon I don't know Mark chapter 13 may or may not be talking about the second coming but I do know that there are over 250 very clear references in the New Testament to the second coming of Jesus when he will split the clouds and he will ride back on his white war horse to judge the earth and to make all things new and so, that question that Peter, Andrew, James, and John asked Jesus on the hillside like, when's all this going to happen? When life hurts, we've asked that question too like, Jesus, when? And of course, we know, right? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When's all this going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> But that's why Jesus says here in Mark chapter 13, he says, watch, be on guard, stay alert, don't fall asleep, keep your eyes open. And the whole rest of the New Testament tells us exactly what it is that we are watching and waiting for. Paul says in Romans 13, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. He says in Philippians chapter four, the Lord is at hand. James chapter five says the Lord's coming is near. And then on the very last page of your Bible in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus himself says, yes, I'm coming soon. Lord, when's this gonna happen? And he says, soon, my child. Soon. One of the things I love about having little kids is that a lot of the time they remember the things that I forget, you know? And every now and then we'll be riding around in the van or something, and one of them will pipe up from their car seat, and they'll say, hey, Daddy, is today the day that Jesus is coming back? I'll think, whoa, maybe. And and sometimes I wish I remembered it as well as they did. I want to live with that kind of holy expectancy, don't you? Because, man, life can just beat you down. And the enemy would love nothing more than to distract you and to discourage you and to keep your eyes on your problems and off of the day of his return. But Jesus has here in Mark chapter 13, don't give up. Keep looking for that day. And how do we do that? He gives us a clue here in verse 10. He says, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. The gospel must be preached to all nations. And Jesus says that in a conversation with his buddies, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And a few days later, when Peter, Andrew, James, and John see that Jesus is risen from the dead, they say, okay, well, I'm all in. I guess I'm going to accept that challenge. And man, they do. If you flip over to the book of Acts, you'll be able to tell James got killed pretty early on for preaching so boldly about Jesus. And, and Peter and James and John, or Peter and Andrew and John, excuse me, spend most of the book of Acts kind of wandering around, getting beat up, drug around, thrown in jail, threatened within an inch of their lives, and yet they won't shut up. They won't stop talking about Jesus, who's risen from the dead and who's one day is gonna come back. They keep preaching Jesus everywhere they go, and it says the crowds were just amazed at their boldness. And when the enemies are trying to come up with something to accuse these early Christians of. You can go read the book of Acts. It says they accused them. They said, "Uh, uh, look, uh, there's those people who are turning the world upside down. Man, wouldn't you love it if they accused us of that? And they took the challenge seriously. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they said, hey, listen, we're not gonna give up. Jesus is coming back, and so the gospel has to be preached to all nations And Paul echoes that same charge. Paul says this to his young son in the faith, Timothy, and this is God's word for you this morning. Receive this for yourself. Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Listen, I'm giving my life to this. I wanna preach the gospel to all nations. We as a church, we are giving our life to this. You're gonna get to hear Riley talk in just a few minutes about the church plant that we're supporting in Ojai, California that is launching this morning. And man, the reason we're throwing so much time and energy and money and prayer into this thing is because we wanna see the gospel. We wanna see the kingdom of heaven come on earth in Ojai, California. We wanna see revival. We wanna see people come to know Jesus there. We wanna see the gospel be preached in all nations. But what about for you? cool preacher man, you can do it, cool the church can do it, but what about for me? Maybe you're thinking, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a missionary. I don't have a seminary degree. Like, what if somebody asks me a question I don't know the answer to? You know, preaching the gospel to all nations, you don't have to have a stage, and you don't have to have a microphone, and you don't have to have lights, and you don't even have to have a perfectly dramatic, miracle-filled testimony story. If you do, that's awesome. Please go tell it. But if you don't, God can use you. What you do have to have is you just have to be faithful. That, man, when you're in a conversation with your friend and you can tell their life has just hit the tube, you just offer to pray for them. And you don't just say, I'm praying for you. You pray for them right there where they can hear it. And when you're having a conversation randomly throughout your day, and you can just kind of tell there's a little door here, there's a little window for me to throw in a nugget about about my faith. You You just muster up the courage and you do it. And when your kids and your grandkids are scared to live for Jesus, because it's just going to make them different than all the other kids around them, you have those kids so soaked in prayer and so soaked in God's word and so soaked in wise encouragement that they leave your household every morning absolutely fueled up with the kingdom of heaven. It means that when God gives you the chance to share a little bit of the story about what he's done for you and how he's saved you and what your favorite thing about Jesus is, you say it, you take the chance, you preach the gospel that Jesus is the one true king so that even when it seems like the whole world is against us and even when you look around and it feels like we're in our darkest hour, And when life hurts and it's confusing and it's hard and you don't see the way out and you have questions, Jesus says to you from Mark chapter 13, he says, don't be alarmed and don't give up. Preach the gospel. So, with apologies to Mr. Churchill this morning, and I will spare you my pathetic attempt at a British accent, (laughs) but even though large tracts of our churches and culture have fallen or may fall into the grip of cultural seduction and secular perversion and all the odious apparatus of the enemy's schemes, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We will preach Christ in the nations. And we will preach Christ in the seas and on the oceans. And we will preach Christ with growing confidence and growing strength in our homes. And we shall defend the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, whatever the cost may be. We will preach Christ on the beaches, and we will preach Christ on the landing grounds, and we will preach Christ in the fields and in the streets, and we will preach Christ in the hills. We will never surrender. And even if, even if, which I do not for a moment believe, but even if this nation of ours were to make our faith illegal, or even if this building of ours were to crumble and fall, or even if the Christians in our land were left imprisoned and starving and homeless, then the church of Jesus Christ, beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the power and the Spirit of God, would carry on the struggle. Until in God's good time, the Lord Jesus Christ with all his power and might steps forth from heaven to rescue his church and the liberation of his world. And all of God's people said, amen. Let's pray. (laughs) And so, King Jesus… In light of all of this, we have but two simple prayers today. Come Lord Jesus. We say it again as all the generations before us have, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. And until then, keep us faithful.